And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Bolander. Nice to see you, Marky. Number 99, center, Wayne Gretzky. Number 9, Bobby Cole. If, if I may have your attention. This is Mario Lemieux. Number 9, Cody If I may have your attention, please. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. The home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. Welcome to episode 12 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. In this edition, we'll play three periods. In period one, we talk New York Rangers hockey with author George Grimm, who penned We Did Everything But Win, an oral history of the Amel Francis era, New York Rangers, 1964 to 1976, a book available on Amazon right now. Great book. And we're going to discuss two franchise-altering trades the team made with the Boston Bruins in the 1970s and one blockbuster deal involving a Bruins Hall of Famer that would have changed the course of history for both teams, however, was snuffed out at the 11th hour. In period two, we welcome hockey historian, and the voice of the Boston Bruins alumni, our good friend John Horrigan, who has an entertaining talk with four-time Stanley Cup champion Mike Krushelniski. In a period three, we feature a remembrance of Finnish hockey star and former WHA Phoenix Roadrunner Lori Moninen, who passed away on August 5th, 2018. This episode of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is presented by HockeyTournaments.com. If you're looking to play in a tournament or just list your tournament, just visit HockeyTournaments.com. Remember, for more information on the Pro Hockey Alumni, visit ProHockeyAlumni.org. Now, let's drop the puck. We're here with George Grimm. George Thanks so much for being here, the uh, ultimate authority on New York Rangers hockey. Glad you could spend a few minutes with us today. Hey, thank you for having me on. Tell me about the experience. What motivated you to write this book, and what was that experience like? Uh, these are the Rangers that, that I grew up, uh, 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 like in the, uh, the early 60s, watching. My father took me to my first game in the early 60s. He introduced me to hockey a few years before that, and these were my Rangers. And um, as I said, I grew up watching them. And um, when I retired, I figured I would write a book about them because I had the time. It was something that I uh, that I had in mind, you know, for a long time, but I just didn't have the time. So, how long? Uh, how long of a process is that? How long before you put the first first words on paper till you completed the process? Uh, it took about three years. Uh, you know, counting all the interviews and everything, getting getting the players for interviews, and then I sold it in about uh, about uh, two months. I sent you know you send out uh, uh, feelers to publishers, and um, I got an offer back in about two months. Well, that's so quite a quite a story. Was, you don't often hear that. You often hear the other end where people struggle for years to find a publisher. You did right off the bat. Obviously, the subject matter resonated. 
Yeah, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, I guess. You know, with the book. George, I want to talk about uh, two key transactions in uh, the Rangers' history with the Boston Bruins, both of which had significant impacts on both. Uh, the first, of course, is the esposito Vadney park Rattel trade in 1975. Now, from my perspective, uh, living in the Boston area, that trade was similar to seeing uh, Derek Jeter come to the Red Sox for David Ortiz or something. It was huge. Front page, front fold news. Espo going to New York. Um, first of all, as a fan at that time, what was your reaction to that trade? Well, at the time, the uh, the uh, Bruins and the Rangers, uh, you know, were both having a, a rough season that year, and Emil and uh, Harry Sinden had been talking trade for a while, and they were waiting to see if they would, uh, you know, either team would, would you know, actually play better. And, you know, they didn't, so they made the deal. As a fan, um, I hated to see um, Park and Rattel go to Boston. They were some of them, they were, you know, two of my favorite Rangers at the time. Um, Espo, I, I really wasn't a big fan, being a Ranger fan. And Carol Vadney, I, I really didn't, you know, give that much uh, thought to. It seemed like... At the time, and certainly in retrospect, Brad Park, of course, had a couple of knee injuries. Um, he was just 27 years old, however. And it seemed as if I, I had heard originally that uh, the cat had fished around a little bit about the possibility of acquiring Bobby Orr in that trade, and that was shot down. Ron Stewart coaching uh, the Rangers uh, off to a real rough start that year, as you, as you mentioned. Do you think that uh, maybe the Cat panicked a little bit with this deal? Uh, that that uh, trade came at a time when the when uh, Emil was uh, you know, ripping apart the team that he spent the previous 10 years building. Uh, he had already traded Jules Villemur and Derek Sanderson, uh, um, he put uh, Eddie Jockman on waivers, and then this deal happened. And uh, about two months later, he was gone uh, himself. He he got fired. But uh, you know that all happened after the 1975 playoffs, where they lost uh, a, uh, a a two-game series with the Islanders in overtime, which was a real shock. And you know it was the end of the Amo Francis era at that time. Um, as far as the the uh, the, the uh, whole shakeup, um, you know, it's been said that he had um, he had um, um, he had the MSG management breathing down his neck, and they told him he had to make changes. Now, Amo has never said that, and I don't think he ever would. But uh, that's been said that you know he had to do something. So, uh, and also. You know, at the time, that team that he had was all getting older anyway. They were all in their late 20s, early 30s, and um, he had taken them as far as he thought he could go. When you look back at it, George, uh, the advent of the World Hockey Association, the Rangers were relatively unscathed as far as losing players. You know, the Bruins had Bruins had lost um, uh, Mike Walton, Jerry Cheevers, Derek Sanderson, uh, on and on, Pye McKenzie uh, eventually. 
Ed Westfall went to the expansion draft. Uh, so all the things that were directly related and indirectly related to the WHA had affected the Bruins a lot. The Rangers uh, paid more money to keep guys. And do you think that had a negative effect on the overall attitude of the team? Seems like an odd question, but did the team become complacent or did they just get old? Probably both. Uh, they were overpaid. They had the highest payroll uh, in the league back then. And um, some of them didn't live up to their salaries. There, there was some that, that should have been let go earlier. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, because I have my favorite players and my, you know, other players. But um, there are some who, who were overpaid, and um, we'll leave it at that. When the when you look back at the trade now in retrospect, um, Espo did pretty well with New York. Eventually, a year or so later, got into the groove of being a New York Ranger. Vadney did pretty well. Um, was never a superstar anyway. On the other hand, of course, you know Brad Park uh, stepped in for Bobby Orr essentially. And although he was never going to be as mobile as he was in the early 70s, uh, he played very effectively uh, right up through the uh, early 80s with the Bruins. And Rattel, of course, played great right up through 79, 80, 80, 81. Um, What's your view now? What's the postscript of that trade? Um, I assume you think it's in the favor of the Bruins, but uh, to what degree? Well, uh, the uh, the thing is at the time, when Espo came to the Rangers, he was irate. He was upset that they gave him the number five jersey, which was still uh, the number of, uh, of uh, Larry Satcharov, who was still with the team. He was upset that they made him captain. They thought that he thought that Roger Bear should have been made captain, and um, he was, you know, irate at you know how the Rangers were you know run at that time. Uh, the overall deal. Um, yeah, Espo did well, and Espo, Espo, uh, you know, was our captain, and he led the team for a number of years, and then he um, moved up to the broadcasting booth, and he he um, became GM, which was chaos um, <laughs> for the Rangers. Um, perhaps and, another, perhaps a future book, George. <laughs> as far as uh, Jean Rattel, Jean Rattel is a great player. I mean. Uh, Emil Francis told me that that uh, that Harry Sinden told him that he didn't really know how how good John Rattel was until they had him on on the Bruins, and he's just a fantastic player. And um, and Brad Park was always a good defenseman. Had had the Bruins had Park and Orr, you know, before Orr had all you know all his problems with his knees, that would have been a fantastic pairing. But, um, yeah, it was. I actually, as a young person, my parents took me to a game of the Bruins hosting the Kansas City Scouts. And on one point was Brad Park, and the other point was Bobby Orr. It was an amazing. I tried taking a picture with my, you know, outdated camera, whatever. It didn't come out very well. But the point, point was, it was just an awesome sight to see those two out there. And unfortunately for uh, Bruins fans, it couldn't last. But the Bruins, it just uh, reinforced the importance of that trade. And getting Brad Park to step in there, that, that's quite a, you know, if you look at the Bruins in that stretch of time, you had Bobby Orr, then you had the Brad Park era, and then you had uh, Ray Borks, you had Hall of Famers for about 30 years straight. 
and uh, uh, ended up ended up being on the plus side. But that trade, of course, begets another trade. Uh, John Ferguson takes over the helm in New York, and you know I've talked to various people, including Rick Middleton himself, of course, and. You know, there were rumors, uh, perhaps overblown somewhat, about uh, you know Rick's uh, off-ice uh, partying tendencies or whatever in New York, and that seemed to be the impetus to uh, get him out of town from up top at Madison Square Garden. You can tell me if I'm wrong or not. Um, ultimately, in that trade came uh, in exchange for Ken Hodge, who had an excellent career with the Bruins, uh, but was on the Wayne in the Don Cherry era in Boston. And um, again, I'll ask you the same question. What was your initial, if you can think back, your initial reaction to that trade and what's your evaluation of it now in hindsight? Well, back then I said, oh my God, that's a bad trade. And, you know, I still do. Um, when um, when the trade was made, the, the uh, official party line for the Rangers was that they were would, they would trading... Uh, Middleton to to save his career because he was burning the candle at both ends, and that brought one of the the uh, the Ranger beat is to ask ask if they don't have uh, any bars up in Boston. Right. So uh, so, but you know, at the time uh, it was made, it made sense, I guess, to a degree. Um, Ken Hodge brought size to the Rangers. He was part of the Espo Cashman line up in Boston that set all kinds of scoring records, and um, Espo was on on his back to uh, to bring Hodge to the Rangers. So you know, Fergie said, "All right, all right, all right, I'll I'll make the trade." And uh, apparently, Harry Sinden didn't want Rick Middleton at first. He wanted Vickers, but uh, but uh, Fergie didn't want to trade Vickers because he had been a Rookie of the Year a few years before that. And um, so he gave him uh, Middleton. And the first year, it actually was pretty even. Hodge scored 21 goals the first year, and Middleton scored, scored uh, 20. Uh, but the year after that, Hodge went way downhill. He, um, he scored two goals, I think, in his first 18 games. And then he was part of the November right-wing purge of the Rangers, where Fergie uh, sent... Hodge and Bill Goldsworthy to uh, New Haven, and right before Thanksgiving, he uh, actually fired Rod Gilbert because, you know, none of his right wings were playing very well. Right. And, um, so it was a big shakeup, and you know, it's it's um, it was a bad trade then, it's a bad trade now. But you know, you could see why he made the deal, but you know, in hindsight, it just wasn't very good. Right. And I guess you never really know. Rick Middleton had to adjust to Don Cherry's system. And that was, uh, he'll be the first to admit that was not an overnight process. And of right. course, he uh, eventually flourished. And when you look back at the Bruins in that era, how they're, you know, when you look at that point where Emil and Harry are talking in November of 75, and what transpired within the next 12 months for the Bruins, uh, which included, you, know, you lose Bob York, arguably, greatest player in the history of hockey. But you get Park and Rattel, eventually you get Rick Middleton, Jerry Cheevers returns from the WHA, and Peter McNabb they secure from, from Buffalo. Uh, they basically then you know cemented their future for the next five or six years with those deals, starting, of course, with the big one with, uh, 
with Espo. When you look back, George, I won't take too much of your time here today. I was curious, when you look back at the Emile Francis era in general, what is your synopsis of his performance, uh, how he basically took a team that was uh, a little wayward, built a powerhouse, but just, you know, and a lot of times it's just luck and circumstance and, and injuries. And, you know, Brad Park, you know, hurting his knee in the bad ice in Madison Square Garden or John Rattel, you know, breaking his ankle or whatever. But in the end, what's your synopsis of the Emile Francis era in New York? Yeah, well, that's it. They just had injuries at the wrong time. But, uh, you know, the injuries are, are, you know, one thing. Every team has injuries. But the Rangers were uh, kind of a thin team. What you saw was what you got. They had their best players on the ice. Um, they didn't really have a lot of um, a lot of backups. Um, Amo did what he could. Amo, Amo um, was able to make the players uh, play very well during the regular season. Um, for some reason, during the playoffs, maybe when the, the uh, opposition turns it up a little notch. Um, they just didn't didn't um, come through. Now you can blame goaltending. Uh, Eddie Jockerman, great goaltender, but a little lacking during the playoffs. Um, Amo actually tried to get uh, get uh, out from uh, from uh, Toronto, but that didn't work out. Um, but. Emil did did the best he could, and uh, you know maybe his time was up. Maybe he had taken that team as far as he could, and that's why he was making changes, and that's why the Garden ultimately made changes. Uh, when he brought when when John Ferguson was hired as the Ranger co- uh, coach and GM after Emil was fired, it was it was uh, ironic because Emil tried to hire him as the Ranger coach that previous summer, but. Um, Fergie didn't want the job at the time, but um, he, you know, in the end, he actually, you know, uh, you know became GM and coach. So. Right. I didn't. I didn't know that. Uh, another thing that uh, you mentioned recently is uh, I had never heard this before. That somewhere behind the scenes there was a potential for a Johnny Busick to the New York Rangers trade. Do you have any insight on that? Yes, Amel told me that um, in 1966 or 67, I'm not sure, um, Hat Ems was the GM of the Boston Bruins. And um, the Bruins needed a center, and the Rangers needed a big left wing to put on the line with uh, Gilbert and Rattel. This was before Amel put Vic Hatfield there. And... Um, uh, they they had a trade all set. They had a trade that uh, the Rangers were going to trade uh, Earl Ingerfield to the Boston Bruins for Johnny Busick, and Amo was beside himself. He he, you know this this was a fantastic trade. He he had his big left winger for that line, and it would have been fantastic. But Happen said he had to get the approval of team ownership, and I think Weston Adams was the owner of the Bruins at the time. And he said, no, we're not going to make that trade. So that trade fell through. And, uh, and uh, actually, when I, when I interviewed uh, Earl Ingerfield for the book, he didn't know anything about it. He was shocked. So it was something that was kept under the radar for a long time. 
That's very interesting. Good investigative reporting, George. And we uh, greatly appreciate you being here today. And we hope that the fans go out and get the book. There'll be links to where to purchase the book uh, in the notes for this show. And thanks again, George. We hope to have the opportunity to speak to you again soon. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, George. Take care. Bye. Boston Bruins Alumni TV, John Horrigan, joined by Mike Krusniski. 14 years in the NHL. He broke in with the Boston Bruins, was traded to the Edmonton Oilers, had 43 goals in 1985, NHL All-Star team. He would go on to win three Stanley Cup championships with the Edmonton Oilers. He was then traded to the Los Angeles Kings along with Wayne Gretzky. We'll get into that in a sec. And then he was a member of the Toronto Maple Leafs Conference Finals team in the early 90s and then concluded his career uh, as a member of the Detroit Red Wings as an assistant coach collecting a fourth Stanley Cup championship ring. Cruiser, welcome buddy. Hi Johnny. Cruiser, one of the best ambassadors in all hockey folks and that's what makes hockey players uh, the best of all professional athletes. I've toured with this man for several, several, uh, several years and he allows kids, parents to put on his championship rings. In fact, you got them in your hands right now over here, the rings, all the rings from the championship days. First, let's start about um, breaking in with the Boston Bruins. It was a young team when you came in, early 80s, uh, guys like Tommy Fergus, uh, Luke DeFore, uh, Normie, Normie Levier, etc. Talk about that breaking in when the Bruins were transitioning from the big bad Bruins <laughs> to the younger. Well, we were, uh, like, I was still fortunate enough to be drafted by them, so my, my first training camp, Jerry Cheevers was still in Nets. So I got this picture of myself sitting here, che Cash is on one side, Cheesy's on the other, and he's like, kid, you better be back, Jack, and you're a young kid now. I'm like, yes sir, yes sir. <laughs> so, like, I was very lucky, you know, I got to break in with Terry O'Reilly, Wayne Cashman, uh, Brad Park, uh, that whole crew, and then uh, be lucky, uh, lucky enough to be in a line with Ricky Middleton and Barry Peterson, and, uh, it, you know, it was, it was, like, we thought we had all the components, we're just a player too short, and, Eight of us get traded the two years later. Like, what's going on? You know, like so. It's but it was a lot of fun. The guys, guys were great. You know, not only were they great players, but the Boston guys were actually all NHL, all hockey people. They're all great people. So it's very fortunate to be part of that family. You get traded to the Edmonton Oilers for Kenny Linsman, and they put you on a pretty good line, and you get 43 goals to go to the All Star game. What was that like? Scored 23, 25. Ask Harry for a five thousand dollar raise, and he trades me. But lucky enough, uh, yeah, I got online with uh, Gretzinieri. Had a had a good year, 43 goals off to the uh, All Star game. Uh, they had already won their first Stanley Cup, so I had to learn what they learned from the year before, and like, it was just amazing. I remember our first exhibition game. We'd be losing like four to two, and they're cracking jokes and laughing. This is third period. I'm like, come on, you guys, get get serious and. Let's say, why don't you just go score a couple of goals, get a couple of assists, and win the game for us, and go get two goals. You know, we end up winning the game. I'm like, what do these guys know that I don't? So, wow. so it was a lot of it was a learning process. But the like we had, we had a lot of fun, great skill here. But there was even more skill. It was, you know, we'd give up two on ones, three breakaways a game, and Grand Fear would be just, I'll move the puck, boys. Don't worry about it. We're like, wow, you know. And then you had Messi and Anderson and. Cough, and Gretzinieri and just the rest of the, the crew was 
great to be part of. So after you have that great first season with Edmonton uh, on the line with Gretzky and Curry, then uh, Slats decides your role's <laughs> going to change. Yeah, all of uh, just before the we went out our exit meetings that year after we won the Stanley Cup, and he's like, "Think you get 50? I'm like, "Yep." So all summer I'm like, "Oh, I'm coming back with Gretzky and Yari. I'm coming back." And then all preseason the next year, Gretzky, Yari, Cruiser, Gretzky, Yari, Cruiser, first home opener. Gretziari, Tikkun, and Cruz, I need you to shut people down. <laughs> but you know what? We won. Um, so I can't argue with, uh, with the, uh, the man's logic or what he was thinking. But By the time of 88, you guys uh, wipe out the Boston Bruins in the 88 Cup Finals. And then the team, uh, it's, it's the biggest trade in sports history, they say. Um, when you were sent to the LA Kings, and they threw in a couple of other guys. And the press got that trade all wrong. <laughs> like, it was, Gretz went for the five first round draft picks, McSorley went for Shelna. I was the guy that went for the 15 million. <laughs> I think Marty and I altered that story. <laughs> so you go out to the LA Kings rebuilding. Yeah. Um, it was exciting, it was, it was awesome. Like, hockey was known, Marcel, Dave Taylor, and Charlie Simmer mm -hmm. had carried that franchise for the longest time, but I gotta admit, when Gretz got there, like he brought it to another level. I remember driving downtown on a billboard, on a building you would see, a 45, 50, uh, 50 tower building with magic on one side and grits on the other, and we're driving by like, wow, you know. And like hockey was exciting. Bruce had us uh, going to black tie affairs uh, like once every 10, 10 days, two weeks. It was awesome. Got to meet everybody. Hollywood was infatuated with the new LA Kings, and here I am. I'm always watching them on TV, so it's like, oh wow. Bruce Springsteen, and all of them. It was Sylvester Stallone. They're like, Cruz, can we get a picture? I'm like, oh, yeah, come on, really cool. <laughs> it was awesome. And they never got the cup, but they got <laughs> close a few times with that team. And again, there's so many Hockey Hall of Famers, Robitaille, Dave Taylor. Yeah. So. And then uh, you go, you move to the Toronto Maple Leafs. And they're in the, on the incline <laughs> as well. And again, they hadn't won the cups in 67. It looked like that was going to be the year, 93, I believe. Well, let's back up to the, we were on the plane. Yep. And I remember I was sitting next to Tanel and he's like, Toronto, interested in the big center out west. And he looks, he goes, Cruz, you're going. I'm like, come on. He's all experienced, knows what he's doing, got to, you know, he's been one of the cop. He's like, you're going. I'm like, Marv, went up to Gretz, came back, goes, you're not going anywhere. Two plane rides later, traded to Toronto. Wow. They were in a rebuilding stage and, um, <laughs> You know, I actually liked my my tenure there with uh, with uh, Tom Watt. I think he was a great uh, great coach, great motivator. Taught us the game, um, and then it it ended up we ended up getting a lot of trades were made. Cliff Fletcher made a lot of trades and brought us to the '93 series against LA and got rooked in, in Game Six on a <coughs> on a missed call. But then we still had a chance, and Gretz gets four points and. Four points out of five, and we lose five four. It's like unbelievable. It was um, a great way to end your NHL career playing with Toronto and all those storied franchises, original six franchise. And then after your playing days, you went over to play in the K. You're a, you're a Ukrainian. You speak fluent Ukrainian, don't you? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you went over to play in the K for a little while. Actually, <coughs> no, I coached. Coach. You coached. You coached over there, right? So we ha I had one more year of playing uh, for Detroit. It was a lockout year. My body was falling apart. I remember walking out of the house and walking like this. And the wife looks at me and she's like, something wrong? I'm like, yeah, I think. My back had gone out L45S1. <clears throat> so I knew I was on borrowed time and 
uh, went to Detroit and they were looking just for experience and a guy that can come in and out, play in the third, fourth lines, take some draws, and I was like, perfect. <clears throat> Unfortunately, we lost to uh, Jersey in the finals, so I never get to win my last game. That's why I keep playing. So with the alumni, and then you go on to become an assistant coach with the Red Wings, and you get your fourth ring. You won the Stanley Cup championship with yeah. all those Russians. I was in, uh, I was over in uh, Italy and got a phone call in the middle of the night. Uh, Mike, it's Scotty Bowman. Uh, Want to join us? We need a coach. Yep. Twenty six. Be on the plane. That was it. That was it. I got up the next morning like, was that a dream or what? Like dialing phone calls. I'm like, because it was the time change sure, and all sure. that. And they're like, no coming back. I'm like, oh, awesome. So I got to join the guys and um, Barry had left for Sweden. Um, he needed a reprieve of just to get away and <clears throat> they brought me in and then Barry came back and I got a bit, it was, it, no, uh, Barry Smith. Yeah, Barry Smith, okay. Um, it was a pretty good fit because Dave Lewis, like they were in a panic, who were they going to get? And Dave Lewis says, why don't we get Cruiser? He's played here, he knows the system, he knows the guys, know what we're doing. Um, we know we can trust them and Worked out great. Got another ring. And another ring, a fourth ring. Yes, sir. And then um, you go over and coach, uh, coach in, the, the, in the K, in the, yep. the Russian Hockey League. What was that like? You know, it was awesome. I go back tomorrow. I love the big ice surface. It was, you, like, you really had to be tactical and thinking. If, if I put the wrong players out at the wrong time, it would only be a matter of time because it was just tic-tac-toe. They tire you out, tire you out, and bang, it's in the net. And, um, you know, it's hard to come... The, the only way I can explain it is, it's like watching Olympic hockey all the time. They can play on that big ice surface. Why is it so, you know, we've told the GMs years ago, you gotta revert to bigger ice. And the guys are getting bigger. You've got guys on the ice right now that are six, eight, six, nine, and skate like the wind. You know, and the one component, the rink has not grown. So it's, you wonder why we got so many injuries. And I know why the NHL are trying to, you know, prevent the headshots and hits from behind. But guys are just too big. They've got to go to that Olympic size ice surface. But then again, is it three on three exciting? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Bring on more of that. So, yeah, it was, uh, that, that's what it was like over in Europe. Uh, a lot of playmaking, a lot of puck carrying. And today, now working with the NHL alumni, Boston Bruins alumni, um, you skated with the Leafs alumni. It's great because you go out to remote areas across Canada and the United States where they have an arena, small towns and villages, but I've seen you work in meeting the, the kids and the parents and, and all the fans and you just leave a big smile on their face and their wonderment when they put on those rings. Well, that's what people don't realize is like we've gone on those trips together and they're great. The people in all these little cities are wonderful. We have such a great time. You, I, I know you have, you get a kick out of broadcasting and this guy, the best I've got to admit, this guy, the Russian team came in, remember? Boston, the Russian team came in and they were stuck. And at the last second, the promoter got a hold of John and he was broadcasting the game. Like Yakushev over to Krupta, back to this guy. He knew them all by heart. I'm like, how did he do that in one minute? And he called the whole game, Stefan Yell, myself, Ray Bork, Ron Duguay. It was un that was the best I've ever seen. But And after that, they said, you come with us to Detroit. Yes. No, 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 no. I, 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 yeah. I live here. I can't. No, no, no. Get to your bag. Come to, with us to Detroit. Yeah. No, no. I'll go out to my car. I'll be right back. I drove home. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Like, we enjoy, like, I still enjoy playing on the ice. I'm getting a little bit older, a little bit slower, but the kids carried me. They set me up for a couple of shots. It's, it's awesome. And... I guess the way that we reciprocate is by, you know, 
putting a smile on someone's face. You know, that's in my eyes, that's what it's all about. If we can, you know, the kids they come out, the fans they come out. Um, maybe they don't get the experience, the NHL, but we've got to give them stuff to walk away with smiling. So absolutely, and you we're like smile, we're right? lucky right. people, right? You're one of the best. Mike Krosniewski, Boston Bruins alumni TV. Hey, brother. We're here with Jerry Rollins, a former Phoenix Roadrunner, and uh, we've just learned of the passing of a, a great legend in Finnish hockey who came over and, and played in Major League Hockey in the WHA with the Phoenix Roadrunners, Laurie Monanen. And Jerry, I did not know much about him, and I was curious if you yeah. could just let us know about uh, him as a player and him as a person. Yeah, so, you know, what I remember of Laurie was his smile. Along with being just a tremendously talented player, he was always happy. He was always clowning around. He was a bit of a movie star. He was a, you know, good-looking young guy and definitely loved to, you know, go down the ice with his hair streaming and uh, was part of our Finnish contingent. So it was Laurie and Seppo Repo and uh, Kamenin and Pekka Radicalio. So we had actually had four Finnish players on our team that year. And what I do recall is he, he was a very talented player. He had, you know, 20 plus goals that year. He, he was a very talented player and they really used to, of course, they didn't like the, the crazy hockey, but they really loved it when we played Winnipeg right. with all their Finnish and, and Swedish players. And we always did well against Winnipeg because our Finnish contingent just brought it up to another level. And at that time, I never knew about the kind of the animosity or the rivalry. It was almost like a, between the Swedes and the Finns. Oh, right. a, Interesting. I yeah. guess it went back, went, went back years and it was almost like, uh, you know, us versus Canada when we played those guys, but <laughs> right. he was just a gentle, gentle soul, you know, probably more appropriate for today's type of hockey than it was back then. Right. I know he went on and played a number of more years, but just happy-go-lucky, uh, pleasant guy, very talented, and just always wanted to have fun. Well, we thank you for your insight on Laurie Monanen and on John Shella as well. And as always, Jerry, we greatly appreciate it, and uh, we will look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you so much, and take care, Mark. Thanks again, Jerry. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at prohockeyalumni.org. This episode of the PHA Podcast is sponsored by HockeyTournaments.com. If you're looking to play in a tournament or just list your tournament, head over to HockeyTournaments.com.